You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond, coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee, and joining me, as always, in Southampton, England, our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how are you doing today? I'm good. It's the dog days of summer, Ryan. Uh, do you know where that phrase comes from? I assume baseball. No, that comes from uh the dog star Sirius is prominent in August and September. And so because it is the, the dog star uh, that the Egyptians, I think, started referring to it as the, the dog days of summer because of that, because that's the, the prominent star during this point. All right. Well, I learned something, man. I thought you were, I thought you were an educated man. All I know about is curling and riots. That's it. <laughs> I mean, those are two very interesting. What about curling riot? Has there ever been a curling riot? Uh, there. So Vera Pezer has written a great book on the social history of curling in the Canadian Prairie. And she actually talks about how, I can't remember where, I'll dig it up for our next episode. But she talks about a protest where women kind of stormed the local curling clubs. They were upset they weren't allowed to play. So that was one. That's kind of a strong protest. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'll do that up for next that. time. Yeah. Okay. Sweet. Um, today we're going to talk about uh, kind of my. I guess it's my bailiwick. We're going to talk about marketing. You got to, you got to have an episode where you talked about like research and smart people things. So now we, uh, we get to talk about marketing, which is kind of, kind of my, um, my expertise, I guess. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I think um, I think curling has a bit of a marketing problem. Yeah, I'd, I would I would agree with that, and I, I a lot of it's just because it's so disjointed. Yeah, and so yeah, we so I think I mean there's a lot of problems. I think that yeah, like you said, it's disjointed. Um, in professional sports, the teams, the players, and the events all kind of sink in well together. Uh, in curling, they're often working at cross purpose and sometimes even get into pretty big fights with each other. Yeah. And we, we, we kind of touched on what curling can learn about marketing from, from other sports in our previous episode, which was with Travis Marwerder, who's a professional beach volleyball player. Cause it's, it's kind of a similar thing. How do individual teams that are part of a tour help market themselves as well as market the, the, the sport. Well, we are expanding on that conversation with a friend of mine, John Allgood, who has been in several front offices uh, in professional sports and is now an assistant professor at Temple University. He will, he will give us his full title, which will take about a minute for him to read off his full title here once we get into things. But uh, John was nice enough to join us. He's, he's a smart dude and he's got a lot of experience in marketing sports one-off events, tours, you name it. We're joined today by John Allgood. He is a 
good friend of mine. Uh, John actually gave me my first full-time job. Uh, so John has been a real influence on my career. He's also probably one of the one of the smartest sports marketing minds that I've ever been around. Uh, but uh, John, John's been a real influence on my career. Uh, he is currently the assistant professor and academic director of the Executive Master of Science in Sports Business Program at Temple University in Philadelphia. John, every time I talk to you, your title gets longer. Oh, it's even got longer since we talked. You can now add Assistant Director of the Sports Industry Research Center at Temple University. <laughs> so are we past 20 words of your title now? Who made- we, have, we have three lines of titles. And every time I get interviewed... I got interviewed by Sports or ESPN last week and uh, got my league baseball business. And I told him my guys my title, and he goes, "Yeah, we're going to go with professor." <laughs> As someone who makes the business cards for my uh, for my company, I imagine that the person there at Temple that creates your business cards must just hate their life. <laughs> they probably do. Where I go. Yeah. So John, I mean, you've spent basically your entire adult life in a front office before you moved to Temple. Can you kind of just give everybody a general overview of, of what your history is and what led you to, to being an assistant professor and academic director and whatever, what have you at, at Temple? Yeah. So I, I started, I got my master's degree in sport management at the University of Oklahoma. At that time, uh, that was 1993. And that was not like a popular degree at the time. And in fact, when I did my internship at uh, the athletic department at OU, there was one uh, assistant AD of development. There was an assistant AD of marketing. There was an, uh, uh, like a director of development for uh, underneath the assistant AD. And then there was like two full-time people and then two interns. That was the entire marketing and development uh, department for OU. And that was probably 70 people in that department. So I got to learn very quickly uh, on how to deal with, uh, you know, do a lot of different things, I guess I should say. So my first job out of college in sports was with the AAA team in Oklahoma City. And I ended up staying there from 1995 all the way to 2010. And that's where I met Ryan. Uh, Ryan ended up doing our digital scoring at a young age. Uh, but I started off at um, in marketing and PR and then eventually uh, rose to like um, I want to say it was a, like a, a director. I was a manager and I went to director and this is a good lesson. And I teach, I teach this in my classes. And I mentor a bunch of young executives too. And this is where I learned a valuable lesson is that in order to move up in an organization in sports, you need to learn how to be versatile. And so I started learning uh, how to deal with uh, stadium operations. Um, you know, I already knew the sales and marketing side pretty well. And then I just started doing stadium operations. And then I was asked to take over, baseball operations. Uh, we, and by the way, we were the Texas Rangers affiliate the entire time. Uh, and then uh, I left for one year um, in 2003 um, because I got, I got offered a, a job to run a golf course in real estate, which was a mistake because I didn't know anything about the golf business and knew less about real estate, but the money was really good, Ryan. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so then uh, I decided that was not for me. And we had a mutual parting. And then I went back to the general manager at the time, Tim O'Toole of the AAA team in Oklahoma City. And he graciously gave me my position back. The day I started, he resigned and became the president of the State Fair of Oklahoma. 
and um, he said, good, well, and that was about it for him. And then uh, I started working for Bob Funk Sr. and Scott Pruitt. And within a year, that was in 2004. Within a year, I was named general manager. We called it executive director in 2005. And then I stayed doing that from 2005 to 2010. During that time, Jonathan, we also held many events um, from runs and walks to Big 12 baseball to Bedlam baseball, high school baseball. But then we got into concerts. We did our biggest concert we did was Dave Matthews Band. And uh, that was an awesome, awesome show. And then we did Bob Dylan. Uh, we did Def Leppard. Uh, we went and did a bunch of concerts. So we got really multitasking, doing a lot of different events. And then uh, they sold the team in 2010. And they started the uh, same family, the Funk family, started another company called Prodigal. And uh, they asked me to go over there and I, and, in the C-suite. So I went over there and uh, was really in charge of developing the company. In other words, was uh, getting partnerships together. I didn't do this one, but uh, we did run an American Hockey League team for five years um, in the Cox Center in Oklahoma City. And then um, we were doing other events, other festivals. Did, we did our own concerts, and then we started producing uh, PBR, not the beer, but the bull riding, and uh, did that for a while. Then we started a national championship rodeo. Uh, so I got really involved in rodeo and, and got to understand the Western lifestyle. By the way, if you're not watching Yellowstone, you should. With Kevin Costner, it's very authentic. And then, um, then the family asked me to start a, a soccer team, so I negotiated a franchise agreement with the USL, which is Division Two underneath the MLS. And so we started a, a franchise from scratch and called the Energy. And, it, and I'm, it's one of the most, I'm probably most proud to have a lot of pride in that, as much as I do running the baseball team. Oh, I should go back. We also, Ryan, if you remember, we did the national championship game. Also, we created that. Where for the, AAA baseball, yeah. Yeah, Inter- International League played the Pacific Coast League Championship. We did that for five years. And then, um, you know, we – and then the last I, event that I did for Prodigal was we brought in Chivas Guadalajara, which is probably in the top five soccer brands in the world. And uh, we brought them in for an exhibition game, uh, and we sold that out. Uh, and then uh, I had already started looking at becoming a professor and then uh, – um, was hired by Temple in 2017 and have been here ever since, adding on to my titles each year. So you've spent years in front offices or just in the, the marketing and development aspect of, of various professional sports. You know, these days you're, you're preparing the future members of front offices. Just what, um, what about this, uh, this sports business program at Temple? Well, you know, tell us about this sports business program at Temple that you've helped grow. So I, it's been around for 20 years, 21 years, um, the sport management part of it, sports business part of it. Um, and it's very popular. Uh, we get students from all over the world that come in uh, for undergrad and especially for our grad program. Uh, when, I, when I got hired, they were ready to launch a new program called the Executive Master's Program. And that's, I'm the academic director of that. And that's for people that have worked in the industry or want to work in the industry. Uh, to have experience. And we originally said it that if you had to have three years experience at a minimum, well, it turns out it's been where the average is 12 years experience to be in our program. And um, we, we have, I'm just going to name some of the companies that, um, that these students uh, work for that are in our program or graduated from our program, ESPN, ACC network, the SEC network, the Milwaukee Brewers, the NBA. Um, let me keep going here. Uh, we have college coaches, um, that want to be administrators. Uh, we've got soccer executives. Um, pretty much the NFL, the NHL, 
We have someone who does sponsorships for the NHL, their front office. Uh, and then we have various people that are in, in offshoots of sports like recreation and different other things. We have about anywhere between 20 and 25 in each cohort. We just accepted our four, fourth cohort. In fact, did orientation last week. And, and some people get in the program also because they want to be professors. Um, it's, it's kind of turned into a trend now that executives, sports executives are in their 40s, want to be professors. <laughs> and so uh, we're offering now a certificate that, uh, that we partnered with another college here at Temple where you can get your teaching certificate and then go teach because it's kind of that transition. When you work in sports for so long, you know, 20 to 25 years, you know, you kind of want to transition to give back to the students. And that's why I did it. Uh, I had kind of done, you know, what I wanted to do during that time. I was a really young general manager uh, for the Red Hawks in Oklahoma City. And uh, at the time, I was named the youngest uh, Pacific Coast League Executive of the Year. It got broke the next year of Mike Schlein in New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I was very content with what I did, but I wanted to give back and uh, really share my knowledge. And I've always enjoyed teaching. I should have mentioned that earlier. I was an adjunct at OU in the sport, uh, in sports business uh, since 2003. So I had, you know, 15 years or 14 years experience teaching. And I knew I, I just really, there's a lot of satisfaction and um, just made me feel great that I can help people out. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm here. In fact, I just, my daughter's playing soccer here as a freshman this year too. So it's, it's going to be a really neat experience for both of us. Is she going to be in the program? She is in the program. I tried to talk her out of it, but she uh, <laughs> she decided she wanted to do it anyway. So she's very she's a very smart kid. In fact, she's a semester ahead already. She uh, she took AP classes in her senior year. She's a better athlete than I am, and she's smarter than I am. That's good. <laughs> That's good that it's not the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're in a unique spot. You grew up in a front office. You ran teams, and now you're seeing the mindset of the next generation as it comes through your program. Like, what's the what are the biggest changes that you've seen in the sports industry uh, in the last you know twenty years or so? How how uh, fans consume sport, and that's kind of my expertise is uh, that minor league baseball business. Um, it's how people consume sports now. So when, when I was running, for example, the Red Hawks, you know, this, this is going to age me, but you know, how we got information out was, you know, you had a beat writer who wrote in a newspaper that, you know, people could consume it the next day. Then, you know, websites started coming around, but websites at that time were more of anomaly. I mean, it, it wasn't, you, you know, people, you probably were still having more people go to the games. Now we, we were really successful in Oklahoma City. We were drawing, you know, half a million to 600,000 people a games. I mean, a, a year, a season, <laughs> not a game. Uh, so we did pretty well. So we, but, you know, it, it kept emerging as, as business went on and, and technology started developing, you know, there, you found different ways to, uh, you know, to kind of consume the sport, uh, you know, when social media hit and then, you know, you started having streaming. And, and so there's so many different ways now how to consume sport uh, that ticket sales, are only a piece now of, of you know, how people are going to consume your, your game. And I, I didn't say this, I didn't make this phrase up, but it's true. I read this the other day is that every, every day now is game day, whether you have a home game or not, or a road game, just because people are wanting to consume sport even, even more now that, you know, there's either limited or no fans at games. And as, as, as important as the front office is at marketing their teams and their sports, it seems like the real marketing engine has become the players 
uh, and the way they're, I mean, now they're able to just completely bypass the media and even the PR office and connect directly with the fan base. Um, you know, so what's the new role for the front office from a marketing pr- perspective? Is it to try and shape the message that the players are sending? Is it giving the players the tools they need to be more effective or is it just amplifying that message? Well, I think it's, it could be all of the above, Ryan. I think it's, um, you know, if you, if you look at the players now, you you don't you don't see the players doing this currently. You will, but you haven't seen players in college that really market themselves. They will now because the NIL um, name, image, and likeness because they're going to be able to generate sponsorship revenue for themselves. But the top flight universities, athletic departments have hired firms now to train the players on how to do that, which turns into a recruiting tool now. Mm-hmm. If you, if you have that kind of uh, partnership with a firm that can help a player become more, uh, I don't know what you would call it, uh, get more exposure in the right way. And then professional teams have been dealing with players, you know, promoting themselves for a long time because they get endorsements out of it. And so I don't think it really has, I, if, if I was running a sports team and what I teach my classes, the message still needs to be shaped about the team, the marketing of the team by the front office, not a player, you know, a player can go do what, he or she wants to to promote themselves professionally, but you know they're not necessarily promoting the team per se as the team that still falls underneath the team responsibility. And the reason why I I am in the support of that is because players come and go, and mm-hmm. you need the brand to be on your team and not a player or players. And then you know curling kind of expands that. You know that's kind of from the the, the organizational perspective in traditional team sports. Is you know you're you're trying to shape the brand of your team curling's in a awkward spot kind of because it since it became part of the olympics in 98 you know there, there's more money in the game than ever before um but that money isn't necessarily making it to the grass grassroots level mm-hmm. you've got individual clubs are mostly responsible for the growth of the sport so what what role should the organization of curling the governing bodies um you know and it is an emerging sport but what so what should a governing body of an emerging sport, what role should it have in the, in marketing the growth of the sport? Should their role simply be producing the Olympic medals and the publicity that comes with them? And then it's up to the individual clubs to capitalize on that publicity. Is there an association? Is there like a curling association beyond the Olympics? Yeah. So each country has a national, what's called a national governing body. So in the U S it would be USA curling. Gotcha. Um, and then it, it's, it's like one of my puzzles is I don't understand the business of curling, even though I've been involved in it for 30 years and I've been a leader in it in different ways. Like I don't think curlers understand the business of curling, to be honest. So um, primarily the USA curling basically has two pots of money. One pot of money is from membership dues, which yep. varies depending on how many curlers are on the country from year to year. And the other pots a block grant from, um, the United States Olympic Committee that's basically ring-fenced entirely to fund the high-performance program and train and fund teams to represent the USA in world championships and Olympics. And is the, the dues, they're paid by anyone that participates in a league? So, if, yeah, any cl- if you have to join a club and you play an annual club membership fee, and so about $30 of that would go to the United States Curling Association, and there's about about 20 
most of it's mo- about 25,000 members. So maybe about a quarter of a million from that. And I, I assume it's up now, but it was around a million dollars a year when I was on the board uh, a decade ago. I, th- I suspect after the Olympic bounce, it's, it'll be a lot higher, but uh, you know, you're talking a couple million at most for the, the budget. So yes. So to answer your question, Brian, they do need to, and Jonathan, it is the responsibility of that, that body to grow it uh, grassroots wise for sure. Because otherwise, you know, how are you going to get from the $2 million budget to what you need? You know, I don't know what the, what the ideal budget is for an organizing body, but that also the more, and, and the more grassroots you get, you know, the more uh, sponsorship dollars you can get too for the national body. So, and then that should spread out. So I, I look at it as the softball model. So the softball model is actually run out of Oklahoma city, USA softball. And it's the same theory, right? So that anybody that participates in ASA softball, whether you're a, you know, a weekend player or, you know, you're a professional player or you're going to be on the Olympic team, uh, you know, those dues go back, but then the ASA actually promotes through the clubs and the clubs take care part of it too, of, you know, setting up tournaments and so on and so forth. So I think from if I was going to recommend to you all, if you were on the board of curling is to, is to you the ASA model of softball. Yeah. And that was the, a big issue that curling faced a decade ago was the U S Olympic committee looked at USA curling's finances and said, well, all of your money is either from these dues or from the money that we're giving you. You really need to build up sponsorships and build up, you know, a third, uh, at least a third stream of revenue. Um, and you're, you're saying that if you build the grassroots, that'll lead to more sponsorship and not, not just, not just building up, you know, the metals, right? That's correct. And it's because what ends up happening is, See, it, it's kind of a you're reverse engineering a little bit. It's because the more, uh, Jonathan, I think what you said about get the Olympic bounce is going to be really important. And so now you're going to have eyeballs like watching if, whenever we have the Olympics again, uh, watching curling on television, although they already have been, but then you're watching curling on television. Then you're going to see is that the more people that are watching will become more intrigued and interested in curling in the United States, for example. So they're going to want to participate more. Right. And then it's going to be, you know, it's kind of like soccer. Do you all know what futsal is? Yeah. Yeah. So futsal is really exploding across the United States. And what you're seeing now is different organizations are taking tennis courts in cities, like, like, uh, you know, city uh, tennis courts, not private. And they're converting them into futsal because there's so many people now that want to play futsal. And so it's kind of the same thing is if you get more people to participate in it, what I mean by actually do it, actually go out and curl, and they're going to pay attention to it on television, which means the number's going to go up, which means if I'm doing sponsorships for curling, then I can go to a Coca-Cola or I can go to a Ford, whoever, and and say, look how many people are watching curling now. So why don't you do a sponsorship that ties in with TV? You know, you do a deal, uh, you know, locally. You could do a deal local uh, for – or not even do TV. You can just do streaming of it and, mm-hmm. and benefit that way too. Um, off the top of your head, do you think of it? Can you think of any other sports that are kind of facing these kind of problems? Uh, Futsal is one of them, but they're mm-hmm. they seem to overcome it. Um, I would uh, rugby, maybe. Yeah. In the United States, not anywhere else. Obviously, I mean, rugby. rugby just went bankrupt. USA Rugby did. Yeah, yeah. So rugby's probably struggling. Um, you know, it, it's not an Olympic sport, but you were heavily involved in marketing for events. Um, 
like bull riding, you know, you were involved in the PP with the, the PBR event that came to Oklahoma city every year. Um, you know, how, how do sports like that work to expand their fan base and even expand participation, which I'm sure expanding participation is kind of tough for bull riding, but at least trying to expand the fan base. <laughs> well, here's, and it's, it's, it's always a lot of fun for me to teach about bull riding to my classes in temple because, you know, 70% <laughs> of them are from the tri-state area and, um, smart, but they've never been exposed to it. And so when I, I show, uh, highlights of crashes, Jonathan, you know what a crash is in PBR? No. That's when a, that? that's when a bull rider gets like obliterated by the bull, like get like a, just gets wrecked. Oh, like wow. where either gets stomped on or gets thrown down or whatever. And so when I show the crashes to my classes, they all just their mouths drop wide open. And usually a lot of them cover their eyes. Uh, so, Ryan, answer your question. Why is PBR popular? The crashes. The crashes. And so, at, at some point, the PBR stopped kind of promoting the crashes because it was almost not, not I don't want to say moral, but it just wasn't accepted society-wise. Um, but you, it, it, how it gained popularity, I mean, it's, this goes way back. It was part of um, rodeos around the country, around the circuit. And what they discovered, the bull riders discovered was – um, they were the most popular event. And so the bull riders actually broke off and started uh, Bonanza and then they started the PBR. And then so PBR is, was owned by the bull riders. They sold it. And it's not owned by the bull riders anymore. Um, but think about how many parts of the country have ranches where they have bulls. I mean, how do you think bull riding started? Just take a guess. Well, you try to break, break the bull down, right? Or not? Well, I guess on no. the farm. No, 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 you don't purposely get on a bull to break it down. All right. <laughs> so what happens when you have 16-year-old boys that have nothing to do on a ranch? <laughs> try, to ride, try to ride horses and, and bulls. They're going to try to ride a bull for fun, right? Yeah. And so it starts with, um, in fact, if you watch Yellowstone, they talked about it the other day. So boys start riding sheep at like four years old. And mm-hmm. it's called mutton busting. And yep. we can do that at the rodeo that we put on in Oklahoma City. You know, you had these little boys showing up in full gear, the chaps, the vest, the cowboy hat, the, or the helmet, the whole thing. And then they go to, then they go to calves and then they go to bulls. So, you know, you have in parts of the country, you have guys bull riding when they're in high school. And then you have colleges that have rodeo teams where there's bull riding. And so just think about, you have going back to the original, you know, you have all these people that are riding bulls just for fun, quote unquote. And then you started making, they figured out at rodeos that they were becoming popular. And so I think it started, the popularity started because people could identify with it, you know, because they tried it and, and they're really tough. I mean, these bull riders are super tough. And then they started making money. And uh, then people that didn't go to rodeos or hadn't been to bull riding, you know, went to just to try it out and you know, saw the wrecks and the shows are put on. The run of show is incredible at a PBR event with fireworks and fire and music. And they've got a really entertaining clown. Um, that uh, talks to the crowd and interacts. And it's just it's just a lot of fun. It only lasts two hours too, so it's it's really the entertainment factor, Ryan. And I'm not sure curling is very entertaining. Is that what you always say? I mean, the some of the, I mean, the more ridiculous shots. I think you know the the skill involved with that, and you know, especially on on takeouts where the rocks are flying all over the place. Like that's really what gets people you know comparatively pumped up. Well, yeah, I, I didn't mean the skill set's not entertaining. I'm talking about 
there's not you don't have like music playing or that type of entertainment or, or uh, no no yeah. and you can't because you have basically have people throwing at all times yeah they tried it at um yeah. they tried it about two years ago and i kind of liked it but the the athletes all hated it so gotcha they could kind, kind of pump music uh, while they were while the teams were deciding what shot was happening, and they kind of used it as a timing device. Like they play the music for thirty seconds, and then you had to go throw on uh, a tight window. Yeah, but, I'm, uh, I'm I'm always under the belief the more entertainment you could do, I, I wish people would scream at the tennis players while they're playing it. <laughs> <laughs> same thing with golf. I wish they were just like just cheering and booing it all at the same time. I think but, when it when it's in the Olympics, it's funny because. In the Olympics, you get fans who aren't curling fans. They just that's the tickets they got, and then it's often the crowd's more there for the party, and there's a lot more cheering and screaming, and it's it's a more exciting thing to watch. But again, that the the competitive curlers used to playing in a venue a bit like golf, where the the, uh, the crowd is quiet when they're uh, you know when they're lining up to make their shot and all that, and that kind of throws them off. So the the athletes don't necessarily like it all that much, but yeah. definitely the the, the non-traditional curling audience, I think, uh, can be a lot more exciting than the traditional curling audience. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I could see that. And, and, you know, I even think about golfers. And I, I'm not a professional golfer. And, I, and I'm sure it takes amazing concentration to be that good to, to win on the tour. It just, it cracks me up when a camera goes off and they stop and glare at the cameraman for taking a picture. I mean, the Ryder Cup's a bit like right that. That's the that's the one event where the crowd's pretty rowdy, right? They are, and also the event in Phoenix, the PGA event in Phoenix on the 16th hole, I think. They have those huge stands, and they cheer. Then that's like one of the one holes on the PGA that you can you can cheer while they're hitting when they're swinging away. So I got a question, since you know, I I, and I think maybe bull riding's a bit like curling in this sense, right? I assume the 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 competitors have to go and get their own sponsorship and pay for themselves. And unless they win the event or, or kind of finish the prize money, they've got to find other sources of revenue. Is that, is that accurate or? Um, it is, but a little bit more complicated. So there's two bull riders make money two ways. One, they win a purse, like you just said. So they, they, when the tour is going full board, they travel almost you know every week. So they, they do usually it's a Friday, Saturday or Saturday, Sunday. And then when they're done, they literally get in their truck and drive to the next event. Um, and so they make money that way. And then the second part is, uh, logos or endorsements on their vest and their helmet. And, um, that's from TV. That's not from crowds and, and, you know, it's there. And so the, the bull riders, top bull riders are actually represented by sports agencies that actually go sell the sponsorships for them. One of the divisions of prodigal, the company I was in, what is a, is a bull riding agency for, and they're, they're they do really well. They usually have six or seven of the top 10 in the world as part of their client list. So they, that's yeah. how they make money. And then of course they can make appearances too. Like they may go to the less, you know, the Western lifestyle store somewhere, which you see a lot um, or, you know, just make appearances. By the way, it's uh, pool riding is enormously popular in Brazil. Mm-hmm. I could see that. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's, pretty much, that's pretty much how curlers make money too. It's just, I don't think that, I don't think they have agencies that, that represent them to get the sponsors. I think a lot of them are on their own trying to get sponsorships. And then like the, the top of the top are getting funding from the Olympic committees. Yeah. I mean, there's actually one of the other curling podcasts out there. Uh, Game of Stones interviewed a curler maybe a mm. month ago, Kirk Myers. And he's basically spending the summer months calling around to businesses. And he's he's a top 10 player, like top 10 team. 
Oh, wow. And, and so he's basically got to spend his summer months going around, calling around businesses, trying to line them up for sponsorship. So yeah. I suspect anyone but like maybe the top two or three have to basically do it themselves. Gotcha. There's, there's a cottage industry for you, Jonathan. <laughs> or for someone with a marketing background, Ryan. <laughs> I imagine that would be a very interesting sale to someone. Yeah. It's a little easier in Canada, though. Sure. I bet it is. So I guess what's, I guess, given all that context, right, what would you recommend um, teams do? Like, how, how, how would they build up their, their revenue to make it viable, right? You have to, you have to figure out. From a sponsor, you ask them from a sponsorship standpoint. Yeah, like let, let's say I came to you and let, this let's let's say I was like a top twenty team. So I'm getting on TV a bit. I've got some profile. Um, probably my team's running costs are somewhere in the neighborhood of eighty to hundred thousand dollars a year. How do I put together a sponsorship package to try to get most of that paid for? Consumption. So we have to figure out how do we drive consumption. So what are the different platforms people are going to be able to watch currently? And then then I don't know if they allow it. I don't know if they'll allow it in the Olympics, but they probably allow it whenever they compete during the, during the year. Is uh, it's the logos um, that are visible on the person's body, you know, whatever, whatever that is, you know, whatever is acceptable. I mean, you see now, right, that the NBA is allowed a small logo on on the jersey. Uh, not the I'm not talking yeah. about the I'm talking about the you know, sponsorship, um, you know, to so do something like that because you're talking about impressions and how many how many times someone's going to see whatever logo that's, you know, on the team. Uh, and then every time they go make an appearance, you know, or, or they go to the local rink to make an appearance or, you know, they go to the really top clubs, right. If they end up going to, you know, do personal visits to smaller clubs, you know, to do instruction or whatever it happens to be, you know, the exposure, the logo is going to get while you're doing that. Yeah. And I think the, the, the top teams are, are doing that and uh, a lot of the issues that we've seen with the the, the major tournaments uh, especially the ones run by um, run by run by the national committees so the national championships in Canada the last the national championships uh, in the US any problems that you've had with the athletes themselves have uh, have centered around cresting in the ability to wear sponsorship logos. And in the nineties, you even had, you had a very large, significant player boycott of the Canadian national championships over the ability to wear sponsorship logos during nationals. So it's not allowed or it is allowed. Uh, it is now. <laughs> yeah, I figured. Yeah. It depends. So WCF, you're allowed, um, you have three sponsorship positions that you can sell, basically. Uh, two on these, two on the shoulder, and then one on the leg, which sounds weird, but if you're in the slide, that, the camera actually picks that up really well. So yeah, I can see that. Now, again, is this is if you're a really popular player, right? If you're someone that, that competes, that's really popular, is known as one of the best in the world. You know, they're going to have an easier time getting personal endorsements than someone that's not getting the exposure. So what we're really talking about here, even though I don't know uh, a ton about curling, the business side of it, um, the principles that we're talking about actually can be applied to any sport. That's why I was able to work in so many different sports. And that's something I try to teach my classes is that when, when we teach at Temple, it's to apply to any sport. It doesn't have to be one individual sport or it can, it can be applied to college or professional athletics. 
So the principles we're talking about can be applied to curling as well. It's just going to be, it's probably going to little, it's going to be different and probably a little bit more um, harder to sell than it would be some of the other sports, just because the other sports have already established from, from a platform standpoint, from a consumption standpoint. So the key is for curling is how do we become more visible and how do we, how do we offer ourselves up so more people can consume us? So if you're, so if you are an emerging sport and you've been around some, you, you know, even in some regions, especially in Oklahoma, soccer is still considered kind of an emerging sport. Yeah. You, yeah. You've got these emerging sports and regional sports in the U.S. What are some of the, you know, or do you have any good examples of what some of them are doing to, to continue momentum and, and continue to grow their, their fan bases? What we did in soccer in Oklahoma City was, and this is no knock, Oklahoma City has, has always been a strong youth market. But, uh, and, there, and usually there's been a segment of the market that supported soccer, but it would, you're right, Brian. It was, if, if you looked at all the professional sports, you know, it's probably down at the bottom as far as consumption numbers, but that's just Oklahoma. It's not that way around the country. Mm-hmm. And so what we did was when we first announced that we were going to bring a professional soccer team is, and by the way, professional soccer had been in Oklahoma city for a long time. They used to be the Oklahoma city slickers yep. back in the eighties. And a friend of mine um, used to run, uh, be, was a general manager and the coach on that team. But, um, is we, we had to educate the market on professional soccer. And, and frankly, even though my daughter played soccer, I didn't understand the business side of it or the culture of it from a business standpoint. So I had to educate myself. So what I ended up doing was going all over the country, visiting MLS front offices. And uh, they were very gracious to uh, educate me on the culture and the business side of it. Um, not, not how to sell tickets, but just the culture and, uh, and the nuances of it. And then what we did, Ryan, was we created uh, – you know, pieces, marketing pieces to educate the fans on the different terms of soccer. You know what I mean? Like all the different things that end up happening, the different terms, what a supporters group is like. And then we would have events like watch parties, not for our team because they hadn't started yet, but for, you know, whether it was World Cup or we ended up doing it for, you know, any of the tournaments that end up happening in Europe. And and so we would have these watch parties and then people would show up. And then we actually went out to the – this I came up with the idea, but it was by accident. So after, I didn't intend to do it, but what happened was, is that we announced the team like on a Wednesday or whatever, the, the logos and, and the, the color and the name, the energy. And then that weekend we had created scarves and, uh, and, and that's kind of the thing in soccer is, is, you know, you hold the scarf above your head to show that you're a supporter of that team. And so I, I was out watching my daughter play soccer and I saw our parents, it was cold out. I saw our parents on the sideline before the game. I thought, you know what, I'm going to give, I had boxes of scarves in my, my SUV just because I had, we'd come from an event. So I went and handed them all out to the, our parents on the team. They ended up taking a, I took a picture of it and then, and then sent it to them. And then the next thing you know what, they posted it on their Facebook page. And then they posted it on our Facebook page, the energies and mm-hmm. then different Twitter and different social media. So then I thought, Ooh, I almost said a cuss word. Then I said, why don't we go to, uh, why don't we go to the different businesses in Oklahoma city and have them do the same thing? So we would drop off scarves and then they would take pictures of it and then they would post it on our Facebook page in their own. But then we would leave all those, you know, those pieces behind that would educate them on the soccer culture, the different terms, you know, that, that are part of it. So we kind of grew the game itself besides the energy. We kind of grew the game and we went from zero Facebook friends when we, when we announced to like 30,000 within like three days or four days because of the scarves. Um, so what we, you know, what would be important, is to educate people that are the non-traditional fans, Jonathan, as you call them, 
how you educate them on the nuances and the terms of curling itself to sport. And then how did you do deploy those marketing pieces? Was it primarily social media and then the, you know, the little printed examples that you would leave whenever you took pictures of, of people wearing the scarves and videos, okay. you know, we would do videos with coaches. Um, then we, then we really focused in on getting the personalities of the uh, players out to where they're from, what they're about, what they like to do. And so if people can identify uh, with the curlers, they'll, they'll want to tune in more. So here, here's, Again, I'm turning into professor. So the more a fan identifies with a sport or a team, the more time they're going to spend with the team, which means the more money they're going to spend, in this case, with the sport. So the more they identify with curling, the more time they're going to spend watching it, consuming, reading about it, which means they're going to end up spending more money on it as well. So that's the key is to get, to get non-traditional fans to identify with curling. And then how do you do that? Ryan, there's multiple platforms like we talked about. Now you can do social media, you know, appearances, uh, exhibitions where people come from free. How we how we worked with futsal before I left was we set up a foot futsal court. You know, it was already put in, uh, in outside of our stadium, and then we brought in really experienced futsal players in the Oklahoma City area, and they put on an exhibition. And you you can imagine the crowds that were just standing around watching them because. The skill level is just amazing. So that, I, that's another thing that, that curling could do as well. Yeah, can, especially now you see, well, in in the non-COVID world, uh, a lot of outdoor rinks popping up um, for outdoor outdoor skating. And I know that's something that Oklahoma Curling Club did for um, the the ice rink that was set up in in downtown Oklahoma City is they would have exhibitions and, and learn to curls um Yep. There on the outdoor rink, and you know, crowds would gather and realize because the number one thing that the Oklahoma Curling Club faced was uh, getting people to realize that curling existed in Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And you, you, you kind of touched on this uh, in the answer you just gave, but you know, pretty much like pretty much every industry in the world, the key question that curling is facing is how do you appeal to the next generation and get them involved? Yeah. Um, obviously the answer is a little more complicated than create a TikTok account. Um, what are you seeing out of this next generation? Cause you're, you're, you're seeing them in your classrooms. What, what gets them to follow or start uh, playing um, a sport? Uh, just interest in, in uh, I, I'm trying to say this the best way I know how uh, <laughs> it's just the, they, they got to have more than just the game. Mm-hmm. So this generation, which my daughter, both my daughters are part of this generation, um, both athletes, uh, they just, they, it, it has to do something with the, the personality of the sport and how much information can they consume about it. So in other words, like international soccer, especially, you know, the premier league is, you know, I'll ask, like, I'll go around and I'll do this next week when I start my classes. So I always ask them, you know, tell me your name, where you're from, what's your favorite sport, what's your favorite team. And, you know, 75% will have somewhere in the tri-state area, right? It's either the Eagles, whatever, mm-hmm. and then, or the Giants. And then, and then, okay, I say, okay, how many of you like soccer? And each year, more and more people like soccer. But what's interesting is, is that they all pick like a premier league team is their favorite team. It's never an MLS team. Interesting. And guess who they usually pick? 
Manchester United. Right. It's the powerhouses, right? They always pick the powerhouses. No one ever picks Fulham like me. So, <laughs> but I, converted, I, I converted Ryan to the Saints, to Southampton. That's okay. my big win. Gotcha. And so the reason why I'm a Fulham man is because, Ryan, I got to see the cottage. Yep. And you got to experience the, the culture. I did. And they did a great job talking to us, their front office did. And then what sealed it for me was it was raining and I didn't have a, anything to protect myself because I'm dumb that way. I, <laughs> I started talking to our, our tour guide who also is in charge of, or was a, is a sponsorship person, partnership person. And he gave me an employee discount on that jacket. So that sealed it right then. <laughs> <laughs> Straight. You went to London unprepared for rain. Uh, no, I didn't. I left it in my hotel room. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I, I guess the answer to your question is, is that I became interested because of the history of the stadium mm-hmm. cottage, as opposed to we went to Chelsea, which was great. And the, the facility is awesome. We got to go in the locker room and have a Pulisic playing for them. But I, I didn't have any interest in following them just because there, I, there was nothing quirky about it. But the cottage was like really appealed to me. And that's why. And so it's, it's that type of personality that this generation is looking for. They want to, they want to put their passion beside, behind something um, that if, if it's going to be new. Now, again, they're just like you and I. We grew up following certain teams, U, Virginia Tech, me, OU. Right, and we're always going to be fans of it, and they're they're always going to have that. Just, this generation is going to be the same way. It's just how can you intrigue them with something that has personality? So what what personalities are are appealing to them? Because like you said, you know they're following the powerhouses. You got interested in Fulham because of the culture, and there is right now there's some debate in curling that our culture maybe is a little too traditional, and maybe that's going to turn off some of the younger generation is that the case i think so i absolutely think so yeah it, it, you got to have a personality these days or they, they're not gonna i mean if you're stoic the only reason why golf people still follow golf is because a lot of them play golf mm-hmm. right? a generation this generation plays golf but they, so they can appreciate watching it especially with the mammoth drives but uh look at tennis tennis has kind of fallen off right would you agree with that mm-hmm. from a popularity standpoint yeah, and um, some of that has to do with the fact that the the U.S. has fallen off. But yes, <laughs> no. What I'm saying is, tell me, name me a player that has personality. Uh, Venus and Serena. Okay, besides them, um, Nadal. Does he have a personality? Is he stoic? Uh, I mean, well, it, comparatively, Nadal has personality. Right, <laughs> Nick Kiprios. Yeah, yeah. So they're almost like row. And by the way, Nadal is my favorite tennis player. Um, but because he has style though. Right. And so that's what I like, but this generation's not following tennis because there's no personalities. Mm-hmm. In fact, someone told me it's not my word. Someone else said is that for the last decade, there's been robots at the top of the game. And I think you can, uh, Jonathan, do you think that we can say the same thing about curling and then you get guys like the younger generation, like, um, Jonathan, you're, this, may, this name will mean nothing to you, but the, the kids like Matt Dunstone, who are the younger generation, who get pumped up and have some emotion when they make a good shot. <laughs> I know who Matt Dunstone is. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, well, it depends on the person. I mean, yes, curling, I think, like tennis, there's a lot of, I think part of the, the robot thing is probably the rise of sports psychology, right? Where you're mm-hmm. you're trained to check your emotions. So the... Yeah. 
the days of John McEnroe are long gone in tennis. Same thing in curling. Like, like all the top teams have sports psychologists, and it's all about maintaining focus, not overreacting to something. But yeah, there's definitely. I'm not sure if there's a personality deficit. I think there's some team. Like I would say, the team that's really slick in terms of playing up their personalities is the the Hasselberg team. Like you follow them on social media, they're posting all the time. Uh, two of the players on the team run a vlog. It helps. They're really cute. They're like always showing their gym workouts. Like they, they're kind of interesting. Um, but the, you know, someone like Kevin Cooey, who's probably been the dominant player for the last decade, he's certainly extremely introverted. He is a robot, right? So he's not the the most exciting guy. The other, the disruptive one, I think, is actually Botcher. Like there, Darren Molding's another kind of old school guy. Like he's always making goofy comments on ice. What about does? It, here's another thing that drives interest, guys, is rivalry. Is you know, like what made tennis interesting too was back in. Like you, you just mentioned Jonathan McEnroe was like all the different rivalries that took place then between the individual players, you know, both female and male side, both of them had rivalries, Chris ever. Um, but do you, do you, I mean, and I think that's another reason why UFC took off too, um, was because of the, the rivalries that, you know, the, the media talk, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the players, you know, talking smack to each other all the time. I think curling's very bad at marketing that. Like the last, I think the last great rivalry was um, Howard versus Martin. That's like a decade old. But like, what's weird is basically in the Canadian Championship, it's been two teams have dominated the last seven years, Cooey and uh, Gushu, but they don't play it up like a rivalry. I don't think. Do you, Ryan? They should. No, they don't. Yeah, I think it's. I think again, it's like this weird thing where it's like, oh, you don't want to give your opponent bulletin board material, so there's very little trash talk. It's a. It's a little too lovey dovey. I'm kind of. I feel like I'm getting old. <laughs> back in my day, like back in my day, it was clear that Howard and Howard and Martin hated each other, and that kind of made it a good a good game to watch. But it's yeah, they're just kind of neutral towards each other. Yeah, that's that's where you need you need the rivalry, you need the spark, you need the the energy going behind that. Uh, yeah, the day. Think think about this, guys. The, when you watch a sporting event, let's just let's say any sporting event. Um, do you, Jonathan? What's your favorite sport besides curling? Probably basketball, NBA basketball. You got a favorite team? Well, Thunder. So okay, so when you're watching the Thunder, um, well, let me ask you this: How do you consume the the, the Thunder product now? Yeah. Uh, YouTube, because I'm like, I'm, there's no, it's very hard to get it on TV here. So I'd say one of the reasons I stayed in touch with the Thunder since I moved from Oklahoma City is it's actually NBA basketball is the easiest to follow on social media. Okay. Whereas I grew up in Canada following hockey and it's actually really hard to follow NHL hockey on social media. Okay. Ryan, what's your favorite team? Uh, uh, Virginia Tech Hokies. Okay. So think about this. So you got, you, both you guys have your favorite teams. Um, does the Thunder have a rival? A rival? Houston. Okay. Ryan, who's Virginia Tech's? Uh, Virginia. Okay. So think about that for a minute. Both of those sports, you don't see a lot of people talking smack to each other, right? But there's definitely an intensity in the rivalry. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Right? For the yeah. most part, yeah. But what do they, we all know, though, behind closed doors, what are they saying? Trash talk. Right. Trash talk, yeah. Yeah, especially 
like in college football, a lot of the players on a, a regional rivalry like that, they probably went to high school with each other and they probably talked to each other weekly. And there's probably at the very least um, a friendly trash talk that's going on throughout the year between those guys. Right. And then what happens on social media between the fans of Virginia and Virginia Tech? Nothing good. Right. Right. <laughs> Jonathan, what, what, how do you know? Do you, you, you said you follow the Thunder on social media? Yeah. You know, are they nice when they talk about KD Thunder fans? No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> They're not nice in the stadium either. When he right. Comes back. Yeah. Yeah. So that intensity, that rivalry helps intrigue, right? It helps people pay attention to it. That's where you get to talk going all the time. So my students are the same way. I mean, you, you'll, they'll, like I said, I'll go around the room and, and someone will go, well, I'm a Man City fan. And then like three people start hissing and booing at them. <laughs> right? Because they may be a Man U fan. You know what I'm saying? It's just that that's almost critical to a to an emerging sport is to get people passionate about it. And one way to get passionate about it is to buy into the rivalry as well. Yeah. yeah. And I think curling's very... Like, I think the traditional part that Ryan was talking about before, in some ways, they're really anti that. Like, there's, you know, I went to a world championship in Vegas a few years ago, and some people were cheering misses by, uh, like, the other country, which is frowned on. But there was, like, a, there's almost like a pushback against cheering against the team. It's not seen as sportsmanlike. Like, a lot of those traditions really, really stick around the sport, even at the spectator level. Yeah, and that needs to change. I mean, they want to grow the sport. That's something we need to look at. And that, and probably a really good example of that is it was last year, the year before at the World Championships, uh, John Schuster and Team USA were on the TV sheet, and he made a decent shot. And uh, one of his teammates, and they're, they're all mic'd, and I think that's one of the great things about curling is that's all cool. players are mic'd. Like that's that's, that's the one really marketable thing that curling does have is if you're on TV, you're you have hot mic. And one of the player, one of his teammates said, man, you made this good shot and, you know, you got like two claps and just under his breath, uh, Schuster said, we're in Canada. What did you expect? Oh. And that blew up. It was like the story for the next 24 hours in the curling world was, oh, how could he say such a thing? And it's like, what did he say that was wrong? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that, that curling should be applauding that if I'm in the, in the organizing body. Yeah, I think it was the opposite. I think there was like a lot of like, oh, we there, there's the they they kind of brushed it under the rug. There's a lot of um, brushing under the rug whenever it's like something kind of goes a little off script. I think. And then the next day, the U.S. played Canada, which made it that much bigger of a story that they were kind of trying to to hide from it, basically. <laughs> so one one thing that I do want to touch on uh, with you, John, before we go. Um, and it's because I saw a, a webinar that you did with someone else in your industry that kind of surrounded this exact subject is one of the most important things for curling, especially at the club level, once we get after post COVID-19, um, is going to be member retention for these curling leagues. Mm -hmm. uh, so what are some things that you're seeing in the sports world that these leagues and these curling centers should be doing to keep their members engaged and lead to that member retention when we get done with this and we can go back to to our normal routine when it comes to playing our sport? I think it's the same thing we talked about at the very beginning. It's just you got to give – you have to figure out a way to get what I call – in this situation, it's going to be 
player engagement, club engagement, where in sports we call it fan engagement. If you're talking about fans, is how do you how do you keep your, let's say your stakeholders, uh, engaged, and that really falls on the club itself to keep them engaged by creating content uh, beyond the competitions. So what does that mean? Well, in soccer, for example, when my daughter was playing competitive soccer and, you know, before she came here to play college soccer, you know, we'd get a, usually get some type of, I don't want to call it an email, but it was more like a link to a website that talked about what was going on with the, the club itself. So we were with OESC in Oklahoma City. And so we would, they had their own website and they would talk about the different players, the different tournaments that the, te- the clubs, you know, the different age groups went to and the success they had. Uh, now, now our club was very competitive around the country and um, at, at all age groups. And so we, we were winning or placing in a lot of tournaments. And so there's always a picture, you know, afterwards. And then like they had the rankings of the youth soccer teams on there too. Uh, Cause they rank uh, this U.S. youth soccer puts out rankings. Now you can, you can, hold credence with them or not, you know, just depends on what you think. I never looked at the rankings cause it's you soccer. I don't really care. Uh, <laughs> but it's, um, I just, I just like watch my daughter have fun. So, um, so really it's just the different ways to engage, you know, it really, each club needs to have like a really strong brand too. That really helps. Um, the brand OEFC was a uh, part of energy FC, which is the club we started. Uh, we didn't run the youth club, but we partnered with them where they used our colors. So that was really important too. Um, so it's it, Ryan answer your question is how, how can the club engage with the stakeholders consistently year round? I'm talking about January, to December, because every, every day is a game day. It's obviously going to be hard because a lot of these clubs are completely volunteer run. You know, it, it, it becomes harder when, you know, it's not your job and it's, you know, it's something that you're doing for fun to try and uh, apply some of these things um, to member retention when you're, you're completely a volunteer and, you know, it's tough. It's tough for even for boards to meet now um, going through all of this, but, um, you know, just something as simple as webinars zoom meetings where you're just figuring out how's how's life going on um you know there there are some places online where you can play uh play curling online getting the you know i've seen some clubs have like you know just tournaments within your club using these using these websites um you know what kid is there anything that i'm missing no i think not really are yeah, it really is just going to be what kind of content can you create to keep them engaged. Um, and, and that, you know what, that, that also falls on hopefully that the top players in, in the U.S. and Canada are willing to lend themselves uh, to, you know, to create content for the clubs. What I mean by that is, you know, whoever, you know, top teams, you know, if the governing body will reach out to them and ask them to, you know, put a, the governing body can put a package together. Uh, through different consumption platforms and that could be sent out to the club. So there could be, you know, a, a regular type of content creation that will keep people excited, you know, pe- get people to keep being excited about curling by creating new content. If they don't do anything and just let it go stagnant until 
you can start curling again, that's gonna that's you're only gonna lose some people just because they've already turned their attention to something else. So is that is that as simple as setting it up to where for a nominal fee you'll create a quick two minute video that's personalized for your club of say one of the top curlers in the U.S. saying, "Hey, Oklahoma Curling Club, um, just want to see how you're going, how you're doing, that kind of a thing." Yeah, and and what I'm doing to stay in shape. What am I doing to you know perfect my my game? You know, yeah, yeah you know, it's because really what you have to do is is you got to I call it pull back the curtain. And and this is one of the things I was interviewed by all these national publications about minor league baseball business, and they're like, hey, you know, how are they going to survive going into next year? I said, well, it's really important right now is to pull the curtain back and be transparent with what's going on. In other words, you know, get in touch. If I'm affiliated with the Dodgers, get in touch with the Dodgers and find out what are our players doing now? Where are they? Can we talk to them? You mm-hmm. know, just to create content to keep people engaged. So um, that's going to be really, really important. So I, I think curling governing body, if you listen to this and you want to hire me, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. But they, uh, it's going to be really important for them to put a package together that they can send to all the clubs around the country. So then the club just needs to fill in the hole. So it would be, uh, Ryan, if you're in the club and wherever you are, <laughs> Virginia, whatever club you're part of, I was trying to think of the name of your club. Is it called the McGee's? What is it called? Uh, that, I mean, I'm, I'm in favor for renaming it that, but it's, it is the, it is the very huffy sounding curling club of Virginia. Okay. So curling. So CCV, if I would have, a, I would open up with Ryan McGee being with curling club of Virginia saying, Hey, to all your members, Hey, this is, I'm the president of CCV and, and uh, I hope you're doing well. We want to stay engaged with you. We care about you. We care about the sport. Here's a message from whoever it is from a national standpoint, that same video that that national person gets recorded, gets sent to all the club. So all you have to do is find someone locally to do the, the beginning and the end. And then you just, you can do that once a week or whatever, just by having different people. But it's going to take the, it's going to take some creative thinking from the national governing body standpoint to who they want to use. Uh, and it's also going to have to take some, uh, a little bit of effort to put in this package that can be sent to all the clubs. And then the clubs will have to do that and, and put within the donut. They're, they're part of it as well. And then you can cr- keep creating content that way. And then, then the local clubs, Ryan, what you could do is have a, uh, have your members that have been members for a while. Talk about, you know, given a testimonial, what's, what was my favorite time, you know, competing in the club? What was one of my most disappointing times? So that way the, the other members of the club can identify with it. I, I guess just to, to wrap this all up, to thinking about the future, what are the emerging trends in sports businesses that you're seeing that associations, front offices, what have you, that they really need to be aware of? Um, and then are there any, what are your suggestions on like teams or leagues that you think are, are good examples for people to follow of, of teams and leagues that are really staying on top of these trends? I, I was asked that before on another podcast and um, it's, it's going to sound so obvious when I say it, just because that's why they're top teams in these leagues. So I think, um, you know, you just have to look back and look at the traditional powers have done well, you know, in, in, uh, well, I got a good friend of mine that's that's a graduate of my program that's in charge of fan commerce for the New York Jets, and they've done a really good job of staying engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the teams that have content creation capabilities, meaning like they have a part of their front office, and, and most professional teams 
and most major colleges already have this set up where they can put out different types of content, original content, like interviews with coaches or, or, you know, the I think going back to highlights is getting old now, you know, playing old matches or old games. Um, and, and then that, that's from a content creation standpoint. But then I think from a hiring standpoint and an organizational structure standpoint, uh, I think you're going to see teams that have laid off or furloughed employees may not hire that big of a staff back. And we'll be looking for people that are versatile that can do multitask. In other words, you're probably not going to hire someone in operations that also can't do a little bit of sales or mm -hmm. you're going to have to hire a salesperson that's willing to do some operations. People that are versatile um, will be really important because the staff sizes are going to be small. And I know that for a fact, because I've been talking to uh, teams and leaders about this over the last like month and a half to two months. So um, going back to your earlier part about the, the best teams and leagues, uh, the NBA has done a terrific job uh, through the pandemic. Uh, that's because they've always been transparent about everything. I think major league baseball has probably been the worst. Um, <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Uh, not just because they didn't do the bubble, just the way they've handled everything. And with the players association, you know, the ups and downs were, the NBA and frankly, the NHL is doing a really good job too, because they've been straightforward. The NFL's done okay. I mean, I'm not saying they're, they've been terrific, but they've been okay. Mark Cuban, from a leadership standpoint, has been really good. Um, maybe the best out of any team owner uh, going down the road. Uh, Jerry Jones surprisingly has not said anything about anything, right? So he's getting criticized for that. Um, and, and, and I guess the the lesson I would leave with sports executives is there during this time is if you don't know, just say, I don't know, but at least say something. Mm -hmm. All right. John, thank you so much for your time. Uh, do you want to let everyone know where they can follow you? I know that you do a regular, uh, a regular column, uh, and then just let people know how they can learn more about the, the program that you're leading there at Temple. Yeah. So if you want to, if you want to link, go to LinkedIn, that's probably the best way to, to, be part of it. I, I, you know, it's really for sports executives or people that want to work in sports or students that want to work in sports. So you can find me there. Uh, last name spelled A L L G O O D. And then, um, I'll have a book coming out in October on the modern era of minor league baseball. Um, so I'll let everyone know, uh, through LinkedIn when that gets published. Um, and then you can go to basically you can go to temple.com and just look up S T H M sports hospitality tourism management and then that will take you to our page and then you'll see the executive master's program if you're interested in uh in in joining uh we wouldn't be able to uh, accept you until fall of 2021 because we only have one intake um but and we we passed the deadline but yeah you can find all the information you need there all right sounds great thank you again my pleasure Okay, Jonathan, there are three things that I kind of want to circle back on real quick after that conversation with John, specifically as these tie into curling. First of all, um, are the traditions of the game going to be a hindrance going forward as we grow the sport and market it? Then what are the roles of the national governing organizations? What role should they have in grassroots development and in kind of like John talked about doing some content creation for uh, the curling leagues and facilities? And then finally, do we have enough sharing of knowledge between those that are on the ground floor at the grassroots level trying to, to, to build this sport up? So the traditions first, 
um, yeah, I think I think there's a couple of ways. And so I think there's traditions as spectators that we talked a bit about John with John as kind of a spectator sport and as a spectacle. And then I also think traditions at the club level, right? So mm-hmm. at the spectator level, I think, you know, we've seen this over the years. There's been a bit of, of tension between old school curlers not really liking excessive celebration, uh, perhaps not liking a little bit of the the mouthiness. We talked a bit about like the kind of people getting upset about John Schuster saying something on a hot mic when actually, you know, <laughs> any... Any any other professional sport playing in an opposition stadium, that's exactly what you would expect to have happen, right? Correct. Yeah. So <laughs> I think in some ways, I, I mean, we talk about this a lot in the show. I mean, curling's got to decide if it wants to grow up or does it want to just kind of keep being a niche, quirky sport with a bunch of traditions that I think is detrimental in a lot of ways. I think it's detrimental to diversity. I think it's detrimental to kind of growing the game to the sustainability of clubs and to reaching out to new generations. And so, um, you know, more noise in the stadiums, more excitement, perhaps a little bit more toleration for kind of celebrations on the ice and all of that is, is a good thing. Right. And uh, yeah. So at the, at the club level, and yeah, I agree. We do, we, you can play up rivalries in curling as a spectator sport without pitting it at like WWE style, you know, we don't need, we don't need Kevin Cooey cutting a promo uh, in order to promote Cooey versus good Gushu. And the fact that these are the two guys that have won so many briars. I disagree. Um, I think, I think the best thing a team could do on Instagram is to start cutting promos before their games <laughs> and talk trash. I mean, I think that would get I mean, clicks. I think that would, like, it doesn't have to be obnoxious. Well, it has to be a little bit obnoxious, right? But like the two teams right now that I think have the best social media game are the Botcher team. Their, their Twitter account's just downright funny. Yeah. And the Hasselberg team, right? They both engage with their fans. Yeah. They get well, compelling content. But you could also cut promos for the games too, right? Why not? Why not just cut a little one-minute right, promo? Right, I'm on board. <laughs> I know <laughs> uh, fantastic marketing. I know Jerry Gertz and Price Atkinson are, are involved with a lot of teams and their their social media and promote and running kind of helping out with those accounts and keeping them up to date. Uh, Jerry and Price, we need WWE style promos on team social media accounts. Sorry, you've 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 sold me. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> okay so <laughs> that's at the spectator sport level yeah i've completely lost my thought now that i'm thinking about like kevin uh now that I, now that i'm thinking about uh kui or gushu doing the f- going full um going full diamond dallas page um, ja- jamie kui would be fantastic at that <laughs> i don't know if kevin kui could pull it off but definitely benny hebes could right Benny oh, Hebes yeah, he, doing a oh, promo. Hebes. He would love it. Can you right? imagine Benny, Benny Hebes and Matt Hamilton cutting promos against each other leading up to a USA-Canada game? Oh, it'd be fantastic. That's great marketing. Why not? Yeah. Why not? All right. So that's, that's at the spectator sport level. At the club level, the traditions, you know, there, there's a certain segment of the population. We kind of touched on this in the way that John became a fan of Fulham's soccer team rather than the Chelsea's or the Manchester United's of the world. There's a certain segment of the population that traditions like that really appeal to. So 
but there's also a certain segment of the population that, that it's really going to intimidate them. So is it worth kind of not getting that segment of the population that kind of wants, for lack of a better term, Scottish cosplay in order to be more broadly appealing? I think Scottish cosplay can sell too, but it's got to be modernized. And I, I mean, I think, you know, the Game okay. of Thrones guys, the Game of, the Game of Thrones guys in their interview, they did the, the um, interview with, uh, with uh, Carrie Galusha, right? And, and Andrew Paris mm-hmm. uh, a couple of weeks back. Yeah. And one of the big points is that curling clubs, even the name club is a bit exclusive. Yeah. The name, I hate the name club. Off. Yeah. I think, I think there's ways in which if you, here's where, again, it's a professional thing. If you go to graphic designers or marketers and kind of say, here are the traditions of the game. How can we make this kind of modern and appealing, mm-hmm. right? You've seen that two minute video that curling Canada created, like this is what curling is. It's kind of it clubs all over the place posts yeah. on their website. I'm sure you've seen it, right? Like the iconography yep. actually borrow, borrows a lot of images from the game, but does it in a fresh kind of interesting way. So I don't think it's get rid of the Scottishness. I don't think it's even necessarily get rid of the traditions, but perhaps market them, right? So, uh, I think it's only in the U.S. that it's called broomstacking, but I think other countries could play up broomstacking as the post-game drinks. Mm-hmm. Like adopt that term and then cut videos explaining that we broomstack and what we do and why we do it, right? And make it clear it's not about yeah. getting boozed up. It's about socializing with your opponent after the game. So you're playing up the social aspect of the sport, yeah. right? There's nothing wrong I with having a lot of do. trophies. I, yeah. You think you do or what? No, I say I think we do need to do the the broom stacking aspect is one of the things that I think U.S. clubs have over other countries. However, I do think we kind of need to remarket it because there is there are a bunch of people that this idea that oh yeah we're going to drink a few beers after the game that that doesn't appeal to, and if you're going to grow the game among families, you have to say you you have to rebrand broom stacking and have it be you know this is this isn't about. The, the winning team buying the first round. This is about us coming together uh, and socializing after the game and then say one of the options is the winning team can buy the first round. Well, I think, I think that buying the first round is fine, but I think it, 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 it's the kind of, we have to de-alcoholize it, right? Like obviously you can buy a beer, but it could also be a hot chocolate or a Coke or something else, yeah. right? And then, then it's being more inclusive too. If people don't drink, right? If they're either sober or from a religious background where there's, alcohol is not normally served, then that kind of makes it more inclusive too. And it also, even for people who like drinking is not their primary hobby, people mm-hmm. not like you and me. <laughs> so normal people, we might call them. Normal. Um, <laughs> it's like, okay, all it means is you just book in a little bit of time, 10, 15 minutes after the game. And what it's really about is not getting drunk, but actually mm-hmm. meeting people and making new friends, right? Which is Which is one thing that curling has over virtually any other team sport is that social thing that's built in after the game. Like one of the reasons for joining a curling club or a curling rink is to make new friends. Yeah. And that's, it's something I can be better at. Cause one of the things that I currently am not good at doing is, you know, if someone, if my, if the people that I'm broom stacking with, if they don't drink, I'm usually still going to have a beer after the game. And probably what I need to do is kind of just be, you know, out of respect, I'm not going to drink, um, especially if it's like a family, just, you know, out of respect, I'm not going to drink in front of your child. Like if it, you know, if 
and obviously you can, over the course of a curling game, you can kind of figure out what your opponent's attitude is toward drinking. But, you know, if, if it's something that they don't really want to be around, then having that respect of, you know, for the, for this one week, I'm going to bypass having a beer after the game. Yeah. I think it's kind of knowing who you're with, right. And, and what they're doing, but the, the point is to put the socializing back in, not necessarily the boozing. Hey everybody, future Ryan here. A couple days after Jonathan and I recorded this, Twitter's own Matt Sussman talked about or wrote about uh, this very topic on the newsletter that he does, which is called The Hand That Cradles the Rock. Uh, You can read about that at curling.substack.com. I highly suggest going and reading that. It's a pretty good read. Okay, back to the show. But also just even like how a lot of curling clubs are set up. It's like all these really old pictures. It's mostly white people. Like there's a space for kind of putting up an old picture of say outdoor curling. But if all it is, if when you walk into a club is the, the past presidents of the curling club and it's like 50 white men stretching back to 1960 or something, right? That's like, so it just looks boring. It looks like a rotary club. That's not going to appeal <laughs> anyone under like to anyone under 60. In fact, it's not going to be appealing to anyone other than the people who have their images on the wall. In terms of the grassroots aspect and the role of the governing governing organizations in grassroots, you, there are, there are some sports where it's almost better if they split and you have separate entities in charge of high performance and grassroots. There's some sports where they need to be kind of under the same roof, um, and it, it really just varies. Like, how do you think it fits into curling? I, I think there, so there has to be some kind of national coordinating body that handles club level coordination, right? Like we, we've talked about it with like British curling is a separate entity from Scottish curling and English curling mm-hmm. and British curling's entire job is to run high performance, go win gold medals. And it gets its funding entirely from UK sport. That's fine. But there has to be another organization. And so at least in the UK, you've got Scottish curling for Scotland, English curling for England that does things like runs the coaching clinics, puts on the competitions at the next tier tier down, helps with kind of club club growth and development, organizes projects and programs that recruit new curlers. You do need some kind of body that does that, that you can't just foist all of that off on the clubs. And there's actually a lot of save labor, if you will, if clubs, by pooling together some of the membership dues, can fund an organization whose primary task is growth and development. Whether or not, I think in Canada, the organization is large enough to handle both those things. I think in the US, it's kind of growing that way. And so hopefully it kind of stays that way. Um, it's, it's kind of, in my, sen- my, my sense is that in the UK, it's kind of just because of the way things are set up, probably going in the other direction. I don't think there's, you have to have necessarily one one way for doing this, but you do need some kind of national coordination when it comes to growth and development, for sure. I, I think that the one argument that can be made for separating the two is it it protects your grassroots against the failure of the high performance side. Because recently, and we kind of touched on it with John, recently USA Rugby went bankrupt. And my understanding about that is the the part that bankrupted it was the high performance side. Like that's the side that wasn't making any money. Um, but that USA rugby is pretty good at 
grassroots isn't very good at high performance. And that's what led to them going bankrupt. And there's risks there too, right? That that basically, I'd say until 10 years ago, you could pretty much predict which countries would be Olympic threats and which wouldn't, right? I think now mm-hmm. you're starting, the number of countries that have paid coaches in the world junior Bs, just in like the six years since I've gone there, is starting to get pretty mind boggling. And so that's a lot of countries that are are kind of going for medals. And there's, I think you certainly can as a country basically say, we're going to fund 40 athletes and hire the best coaches in the world and throw a few million dollars at it. And you can actually become a medal threat and just forget everything else. But if you miss the podium, your National Olympic Association may come back in the next cycle and say, that's it, your funding's gone. Mm-hmm. Right. And then where does that leave everything else for curling in the country? What would you say, what would you say is best for curling then everything under the same roof? Um, as I I'm okay. So my view is that everything under the same roof is great because you can kind of tie together the resources, but the bigger issue is the grassroots has to figure out a way to make the grassroots project self-sustainable, whether it's part of the same organization or not, because that in many ways is the more important bit. That was actually Mm -hmm. John's point. As soon as we kind of described you know, curling to him, he said, well, you want to be like softball and softball relies very heavily on its grassroots, even though it's an Olympic sport, right? Because Mm -hmm. the Olympics, the Olympic part of it, the high performance part of it's once every four years, the rest of the time, you've got to have some kind of membership base that's engaged and active, which I thought was interesting because I think more often than not, we talk about high performance versus grassroots. It's kind of like the, the grassroots is seen as the, the weight that's holding back the high performance program. But his point was actually, it's actually in the high performance program's best interest to sustain the grassroots too. I don't think I've heard someone put it the way he did that the grassroots actually helps you with your sponsorships and not, it's not necessarily all about, you know, performing on the world level to get sponsorships. It's, Hey, if you sponsor us, you're also reaching all of these members of these organizations at the grassroots level. Yeah, and I think I think Curling Canada has always known that, right? That, that one of the reasons Curling Canada is so successful at marketing the Scotties and Briar is when they go to sponsors, they say, you know, we've got a million members across Canada. They all follow Curling. Mm-hmm. They're fanatical about it. If you sponsor this product, if you're Tim Hortons, they're going to choose you over Starbucks, right? Or if you're Scotties, they're going to yeah. choose you over a different paper product, right? So they have a, a natural hook to go to sponsors. So if you have a large membership base, then you can start turning around to sponsors and saying, it's not just sponsoring these 20 athletes who you might only see once every four years on TV. It's that we've got a large membership base that will also buy your products and support whatever it is you're offering. Just to wrap it all up, I think that the thing that we need more of in curling is that is a sharing of knowledge. You know, we need we need more than just the annual member assembly. We need more than, you know, occasionally getting together at the arena nationals to, to share ideas. If, if you're having trouble selling out your learn to curl, if you're having trouble um, getting news hits, reach out to other clubs. Like that's the number one thing. Like, you know, when I was working for arenas, we did a quarterly call with every arena in our um, in our region. And we talked about here are our successes, here are, here are our failures, here's what we've learned from the last, uh, the last three months. 
and here's how we're going to apply mm-hmm. it to the shows that we have coming up. So it's, you know, share resources, even if it's as simple as sharing, um, sharing photos, because it is, that is one of the things that you need these days to promote your game or to promote, to promote your organization in social media or in press releases is you need high quality, high res photos that you can include um, because that, that those, those visuals are what really help sell curling and it is completely worth it to pay a photographer two hours to come out to a learn to curl or come out to a league night just to have some high quality photos um, in your back pocket that you can use to help promote your organization. Yeah. And this is a really simple trick right there, right? And there's a lot of them like that. Well, you also talked in a previous episode about how you guys set up a social media board, right? So there's just like a, what is it, a giant cardboard thing that people can take an Instagram photo in that said they went, they went whatever. Yeah. Just an Instagram station where they could go. Yeah. It was, it was a selfie station. So part of, part of your stations on our learn to curl, your last station was the selfie station. And so you went through there, you got your picture with your rock. So when uh, we had one of our, uh, one of our volunteers was there to take photos if you wanted an action photo of you um, so that you could print. And then that's easy, easy promotion. Um, but yeah, and then when I worked in baseball, we had a website that we all had access to where it was all of our game notes, all of our press releases, you know, everything that we were doing to help promote our team. And, you know, Jonathan, like, my number in terms of marketing, like my number one suggestion to anybody is if you see a good idea, steal it. And if you have a good idea, be willing to share it with other, with other organizations similar to yours. Cause that we really, we're all in it to help grow the sport. Yeah. I think that's a really good idea for sure. Mm-hmm. The one thing I've learned from marketing, Ryan, is you got to finish with a call to action. And so I want all our fans to follow us on Twitter at curling podcast <laughs> want them to like our facebook page rocks across the pond on facebook we need a lot more likes there and i want you to tell all your friends about us and i want you to go give us five star reviews on itunes i think our friends at game of stones have better reviews than us and i don't like that oh man i haven't even looked now now i'm now i'm fired up also <laughs> um also, uh, speaking of Game of Stones, uh, we we do a pod stacking with them every Monday at 5 p.m. In, uh, Eastern. Some of them are, are interesting. Some of them are only interesting to us. But every week it's fun, and we we hope that you'll come and hang out with us. And if we got 1,000 viewers, Scott Graham has promised to get a tattoo. Of our choosing. Of our choosing. So just show up Monday at 5 on Facebook. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody.